Welcome back to M&A. Here's the deal, where we talk about the latest trends and happenings in the M&A landscape. Remember to like and subscribe to our podcast to catch all of the latest episodes. Welcome everyone back to M&A Here's the Deal podcast. Today, we'll be covering the impacts of the COVID-19 coronavirus on the markets following the release of the first weekly unemployment data from March 26. Your host for today is Mukhtar Ahmed with guests Aaron Byrne, Henry Lacey, and Stephanie Sparling. Thank you to our producers, Anton Rasatkin and George Zhu. Now, Mac, over to you. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Uh, once again, we are back here for um, Here's the Deal podcast. Today, we'll be covering COVID-19 and the impact that it will be having in financial services industry, uh, M&A, and what the future holds, um, resulting from the impact that we are seeing. So to get started, I've got a uh, steam panel here. Uh, I'll go through a quick introduction here, starting with uh, Aaron, Aaron Byrne. Aaron is a partner and a practice leader in one of the consulting shops here in Chicago. I also have um, Henry, Henry Lacey. Hi, yeah, thanks, Muktada. It's Henry Lacey here, partner in New York for Transaction Advisory Services. Terrific, and I've got Stephanie Sparling. Hi, Stephanie Sparling, a senior manager based out of San Francisco, also in Transaction Advisory Services. All right, terrific. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining. I recognize we're in uh, some interesting times these days. So let me start out with a simple question. Um, over the last uh, week, week and a half, we've been remote. Have you guys, uh, this is an open question, have you guys made, made any additions to your home office? I haven't made any additions to my office, but I am looking to uh, add a Peloton bike so that I have a better means of uh, staying active while uh, staying inside. I've, I've purchased a very nice 27-inch curved monitor. I've raised my laptop up on a shoebox and had 20 bottles of wine delivered. <laughs> <laughs> Terrific. Uh, I, I finally gave in and I'm getting a standing desk. Uh, I figured at least it will make me feel like I'm doing something um, while being at home. Uh, the second question I had for you was, um, as you have had hopefully more ch- chance to stay at home and reflect a bit, what's been your most interesting reflection from working at home? I don't know if this is an interesting reflection, but what I'll say is I've always kind of wondered why I've uh, been inclined to travel as much as I do for work and, and so forth. And now I've understood that uh, it's actually something that I find uh, necessary to keep myself going because staying in one place is not in my nature. Terrific. Thanks, Aaron. I think for me, it's been, um, I miss I miss the human interaction of people just popping into the room and going high and, and having a quick chat. And that's been replaced with sort of formal half hour conference calls or, or telephone calls in my diary. So it's been very rapidly filling up with, with very short, sharp meetings. So, you know, a day can be 15, 20, 20 meetings, sometimes lasting sort of 12, 13 hours. So it feels feels very full and I'm now managing to put some time in my diary to get out and get some fresh air. Uh, fortunately, I do have a Peloton bike. So just occasionally I squeeze in a half hour spin class as well. So, um, but I do know that I'm not, not built to stay in. I would kind of agree with you there, Henry. I'm, I'm used to interacting with people in person a lot more. Uh, and so it's been interesting trying to get used to maintaining that interaction. I've started doing uh, Zoom Zoom meetings with my friends so that we can all catch up uh, a group of us at a time. I definitely notice an increase in group text messages as well, uh, just as a way to, to stay in touch. I think also I miss, I miss I miss my clients. I think the interaction and, and mental stimulation of talking to your clients and being with your clients on the ground, um, you know, can't necessarily be replaced by by telephone calls and video conferences. The ability to, to you know chat chat to them and see what's going on in their world and, and their day, I think, is is hugely important. Uh, 
terrific. Thanks for sharing those observations. All right, so let's dive in. Uh, so I think to get started, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit more about how we got here. So in exploring this question, we thought the best way to start it would be to discuss a bit of history, especially um, as to how this uh, situation came about. How did it start? Where did it start? And what led it to becoming uh, this, this significant of an issue globally? So to give us more context, Stephanie, would you mind jumping in and talking a little bit more uh, about the history of where this came about, origins, and, and the, uh, the reasons behind it becoming such a big deal? Sure. Uh, So the coronavirus or COVID-19 is actually a new respiratory illness that emerged in Wuhan, China in December last year and rapidly spread across China before making its way to several other countries around the world. So what started as an epidemic in China is now a global pandemic. Uh, Some of the reasons for the spread of this uh, new illness compared to other other viruses that we've seen in the past has probably been uh, uh, more rapidly spread due to global travel. Um, so what are some of the characteristics of COVID-19 as it's been? So what are some of the characteristics of COVID-19? Uh, so we do know it's spread, it's airborne uh, spread through respiratory droplets, and it can you can also pick it up on contaminated surf- surfaces. Uh, some of the key symptoms that have been seen are a sudden onset of fever, dry cough, muscle aches, fatigue. Uh, what is interesting about this this new illness is that there are many people who are asymptomatic uh, and may not show any signs of the illness. And so they are spreading COVID-19 as well. We're still learning a lot more about this virus at the time. Um But, you know, new symptoms that we've learned about is that those who may be asymptomatic, also there are cases where it's been reported that they lose, people lose their sense of taste and smell. Uh, There's currently no vaccine or treatment for COVID-19. The incubation period is anywhere from one to 14 days, potentially as high as 24 days. Um, And the current fatality rate is fairly high. Uh, It's almost currently just under 5%. To date, we've seen about 439,000 cases globally with about 20,000 total fatalities. And this is affecting 170 countries and territories around the world. Uh, To put that in perspective, uh, the average rate of infection for COVID-19 is about three three people are infected by each sick person. Um, for uh, But the fatality rate is just under 5%. The seasonal flu has about the same rate of infection, but the fatality rate is under 0.3%. To date, uh, most of the cases have been in China, followed by Italy, uh, quickly being followed uh, by a high rise in number of cases in the U.S. and in Spain. China took some fairly aggressive measures uh, to try to contain the virus, uh, including quarantines. South Korea did the same. And they also have a significant amount of testing available. Uh, So they've actually been able to uh, reduce uh, the impact of uh, the number of cases. Uh, I would say that Europe and the U.S. have lacked some of that rigorous testing compared uh, to South Korea. And so the amount of identified cases in the U.S. is probably a lot lower than what the reality is. Terrific. Thanks, uh, Stephanie, for getting us caught up to the situation that's happening. Obviously, the situation is changing so rapidly that I think by the time this podcast is live, I think uh, a lot of those numbers would already be outdated. 
but I think it shows the seriousness of the situation. So p- part of uh, what we have heard, Stephanie, is also the fact that maybe there wasn't as much transparency or uh, transparency or uh, as much seriousness in in terms of um, how uh, how rapidly others uh, prepared to be able to uh, respond, other countries prepared to respond. Do you think that was a factor in in how serious uh, the issue became? I, I think that is definitely one factor that that played a role in how serious we've seen the rise in number of cases and fatalities in different countries. In Italy, for example, they're the worst affected country in Europe. Uh, they were a little bit slower to implement quarantines. And also, I think there are some culture differences as well that play a factor as to how effective some of those measures have been to date. The U.S., for example, only implemented shelter in place, but has not implemented any sort of quarantine for some of its big cities, such as uh, New York, L.A., or San Francisco. Uh, So I think we're still a couple of weeks out before we'll see the effect as if as to whether or not uh, we'll see a, a, a drop off in the uh, rate of cases. But for now, I think all those countries are still focused on uh, trying to flatten the curve uh, so that hospitals aren't overwhelmed and we have the ability to uh, test and care for those that uh, become ill. Terrific. I think that's a really good insight, Stephanie. Um, I think that I've heard uh, and seen various estimates related to the global peak. Um, do you think we're close to global peak or is that coming in the next couple of weeks, a month? What's the what's the perspective you found that? I don't think we've seen a peak yet. I, I think we'll gain better insight over the next couple of weeks. Uh, What we are seeing in uh, the U.S. is that there is still a rapid rise in number of cases. Uh, We were also still seeing a lot of fatalities in in Spain as well. I think, if I recall correctly, the number of cases in Italy as of yesterday may have actually declined slightly. But I, I think it's too soon to say that we've reached a peak yet. Great. So now I think let's turn a little bit about the macroeconomic uh, reaction. So um, thinking about U.S., uh, the latest unemployment numbers report that just came out and, and how significant uh, of, uh, of a impact are we seeing in the market and the actions from a monetary perspective? The broader point was 3.3 million jobless, um, jobless claims this year. And this quarter, and I think it's the last the last uh, number as high was one-fifth of that in 1982. So we've never had a number this high. Uh, and the last report was 200,000. So we went from 200,000 to close to 3.3 million. And uh, obviously, Fed action, uh, you know, the $1 trillion um, infusion from a loan perspective, the 500K, 200K separate contributions to stimulate the, the kind of market. And then I was going to ask you a little bit about the, the $2 trillion fiscal package that just got passed. So do you want me to come back on those? Yeah, come back on those. I don't have a okay. concise response yet. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Okay, so I'm going to jump uh, jump ahead and we'll come back to that, Stephanie, okay? So jumping into the the impacts of this, especially as we think about the financial services industry and the M&A landscape, what have you observed so far uh, in terms of the impact of the financial services industry? So more broadly, I'm thinking banking, payments, wealth asset management, insurance. Uh, what what have been kind of the immediate reactions uh, we've been seeing in this space? So maybe I'll start with you, Henry, on this. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks much for that. So I think, you know, the, the immediate uh, response from many businesses in the last week, 10 days here in the U.S. have been drawing down credit lines, et cetera, to hold cash, cash becoming much more king um, as opposed to, you know, just relying on potential future credit. I think we've seen, um, I think it was reported that the payment system moved
moved more money last week than any week in, in on record, um, both from a personal, personal and a corporate level. Um, and touching on you know Stephanie's point, we've seen you know the the, the U.S. government come in and buy bonds. We've also seen the U.S. government, and as, as we sit here and record this, we're we're waiting for the approval of the two trillion dollar um, fund. Um, but you know, I've, I think everyone knows that that will be approved. I also think you know when you look at the, the overall financial impact on the financial markets, people are in a little bit of wait and see because. At the moment, they, they're adjusting to a new normal of working from home, not being able to go into the office, about how you support how you support an industry that has has been a, a presenteeism industry in terms of how do you regulate traders who need four eyes processing, etc. So there's been a significant swing and shift in, in that last week, 10 days, as people have adjusted to that. So, you know, we've seen clients who have struggled with things like not having enough laptops, not having enough bandwidth, you know, not being able to support fully fully functioning businesses working from home. So they've been on that upward trajectory of, of being able to get their people out of offices and into into homes to go with that. Um, you know, and I th- I think that will continue for for a time. And despite the words that the president say, says about rushing back to work, I think no no employer will put their their staff at risk by an early return so you know that working from home as as a normal will will stay for some time however you know you temper that with with what you said around you know three million plus people signing on to unemployment last week record numbers you know the the u.s economy and the global economy cannot cannot sustain that for for a long period of time so at some point this new normal has to return to the old normal and we have to get back to work and, and the shops have to reopen and the restaurants have to reopen and people have to get back to having an income. Terrific. Thanks for those insights, um, Henry. Uh, Stephanie, I know, you, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I also just think that, you know, when we look at the population within the U.S., there are a significant number of people who have been impacted by this, again, with 3.3 million layoffs, um, you know, new jobless claims in the since last week. Um, you know, a lot of cash, as Henry said, cash is king. And it'll be important to get cash into people's pockets if we want to stimulate uh, the market. But I also agree that we will be, uh, you know, working remotely and, uh, you know, staying put for, for some time. Thanks, uh, Stephanie. So it seems like majority of kind of the reaction from the financial services space has been the broader focus on immediate need to kind of keep the the lights on, right? Uh, and a lot of for a lot of them, it's meant um, having workforce remotely kind of do the job that they were doing. As we look further out next few weeks and next few months, um, are there lessons that we uh, have learned from other countries that have gone ahead of us um, and companies that have reacted to those situations that we can uh, consider applying here? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that's a very good observation. So I think you know when you look globally, if, if you look at somewhere like Wuhan where this started, then obviously you know, the the culture is much more compliant, so people will do will do what the government tells them to do, um, and you know the Chinese government were quick to quick to lock Wuhan down and, and manage that, and it spread. You know, it did spread across China, but nowhere near as rapidly or um, as aggressively as it has spread across uh, parts of Europe and parts of America. You know, you look across Asia again. They they've lived with things like SARS and MERS, and they locked they locked down very quickly and managed it that way. And if you look now at the spike that's happening in places like Singapore and Hong Kong, that's because you've got returning expats as opposed to 
local transmission. I, I, I think, you know, when you look at lessons learned, you know, the, the Italian the Italian observation is they didn't close their borders quick enough. They they very much allowed flights to continue through the Chinese New Year period, etc., as opposed to closing their borders. So, you know, that that exacerbated the, the influx of people who were carriers. Um, you know, one of the one of the very positives about what the US did was they they stopped flights from high risk countries very early. So, you know, um, potentially we've saved many lives there, but you know, as a nation we are less compliant. So, you know, still people are gathering, still people are undertaking activity that, that propagates the spread um, because people don't like to be told how to live their daily lives. So, you know, th- th- there are those learnings there. Um, yeah, and, and as a personal observation, sometimes you also have to, to observe, you know, the news cycle has a 24-hour-a-day news cycle to fill. So you know, is, it, it, is the commentary and the news greater than the, greater than the, 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 the issue at hand? I don't know. It's serious. People are dying, and I, I recognize that. But you know, will we look back in, in, in a period of time and actually go, this was an overreaction? Great point, Henry. And I think, uh, I mean, that also brings into the question of uh, what's the end game, right? I mean, I think it seems like some of the the countries that have recovered more uh, more quickly, it seems like there may be a second coming here um, as, as things improve. So maybe this, uh, Aaron, uh, if, if you want to jump in here, I was going to more broadly ask, what's our end game here? Do we expect to come out of this um, after a quarantine where everything is fully kind of dead and complete is that a likely scenario and we'll be back to normal maybe that's three months maybe that's six months from now or do you see this becoming more of a a new normal that we have to live with so maybe we come back three months from now uh, but these cases continue um, and we just need to work with and live in a world where that's the the norm well from a from a health and medical perspective you know I, i don't really know what the true outcome will be or what the, the propensity of the virus would be. Um, I would imagine that it'll be something that we'll continue to live with for, for a period of time and um, it will be somewhat of a new normal in terms of how we have to manage our health going forward. Um, you know, I, I anticipate that some of the reactions that we've taken societally um, and, and on a global basis, and some of the reflection that, that people will have coming out of this will make us realize that uh, you know, some of the gaps that, that we've had in, in the way we think about things or the way that we're interacting um, or the way that we're doing business um, are opportunities that, that will drive us towards a, a different normal. Thanks, Aaron. I think what, what you said, uh, I think even from a healthcare professional perspective, there's a lot of uncertainty as to what the future holds and what what kind of uh, shape this uh, will result in. So maybe keeping that in mind, um, as, as you have interacted with clients or, uh, you know, engaged with clients who have already potentially announced deals, what are you seeing in the market? Are you seeing um, deals fall through or companies walking away from deals or are people kind of sticking to their pre- COVID uh, kind of uh, search uh, hypothesis and continuing to think about their deals as they were thinking previously? There's a few structural changes that we've seen from a deal perspective. Uh, people, you know, really what it was driven by was the downward trend in, in the markets and just some realities of you know, when deals are done, the structures around you know, equity and cash and, and uh, other mechanisms and structure and the M&A transaction. And some of those just can't hold in an environment where you're having a significant decline in what the value of things is. And so we've seen clients uh, try to deal with that on the front end by restructuring deals, changing the balance of how they're paying and so forth. We've seen others extend to their closed deadlines uh, they've already announced. And I think at the end of the day, it really comes down to how strategic was the acquisition to begin with. And um, right before this occurred, there was a big upsurge in 
financial services M&A that we had not seen for some time in some of the largest M&A transactions that uh, had happened in several years were occurring within a number of weeks. And um, you know the, the thing that I always come back to is the fundamentals of why those deals are getting done has not changed. It's the environment and the health situation that's changed. And um, you know, I don't anticipate that we will see M&A um, subside for, for an extended period of time. I actually think that there will be a situation where uh, some of what's unfortunately happening with certain businesses uh, getting run down from a recessionary period is going to make those that are capital strong and have the ability to invest take advantage of that situation. So I think there will be continued M&A and it will probably happen both on the buy and sell side, um, but it will take us getting through a period of stabilization before that returns. Great. Thanks, Aaron. So I think as, as you were talking about it, I think maybe there, there are some short-term, medium-term, and long-term effects of, uh, of COVID uh, in terms of the financial services uh, industry and, and how business operates. Do you want to share your thoughts on, on um, how those trends currently, uh, from your perspective, think like they'll shape up? Well, there's a series of trends that have been emerged in financial services for some time now. Um, you know, the way that, that financial services interacts with customers and where they interact with those customers, the mechanism of getting direct to, to uh, customers, be it either businesses or clients, um, you know, the increased usage of technology tools and, and interactions to better refine um, you know, the, the offerings that are being provided out to customers and how those are supplied um, new channels of reaching customers to be where where the customer wants to receive the service as opposed to having the service uh, be something that they have to go out and, and retrieve. And I don't think those kind of standard sets of uh, trends is going to, to change. In fact, I think it'll be amplified because what we've the situation that we've um, now been placed in with COVID is that we are uh, distanced from all of those daily interactions that that we come to to know as what standard life is, and that distance has forced us into a situation where you know that ability to interact uh, from afar or to interact um, in a more of a digital fashion has almost become a necessity. And so, you know, all of those elements of those trends, I think, will continue to amplify themselves on the back end of this. And even if it does not result in immediate change um, in terms of, of what people are able to do during the crisis, I think it will um, open eyes to you know what what this means for business models going forward and how we have to uh, interact in a in a world where things can uh, over a number of days change our entire global economy. Thanks, Aaron, Henry, or Stephanie. If you guys want to jump in, feel free. I think we're going to see a lot of companies uh, trying to push uh, their digital agendas more rapidly as a result of this. Um, I mean, already we're seeing an increase in the use of mobile and online uh, banking and payments as as customers are uh, trying to move away from cash, just given the fact that uh you know, cash could be a carrier of COVID-19. Um, so I think I think we're going to see stronger use of, of those channels, at least in the U.S., uh, which I feel like has lagged a little bit compared to uh, parts of parts around Asia. Um, but I also think we'll also see uh, continued uh growth and implementation of, you know, technology to support the growth of those digital channels. Yeah, I, I agree, Stephanie. And I think the, the, the challenge will be if you look at how we come out of this and companies and, and banks in particular look to trim their overall cost, cost base, then do you need the number of brick and mortar branches that you, you have on the high street? So actually, 
you know this could this could be a huge negative for for real estate and the high street because as as banks and and retail stores adjust to a new normal of a digital and, and an online presence then as customers become more tech savvy then that's that's the driver you know that the the areas that will struggle and are struggling are places like hotels and bars and restaurants that that don't have a digital presence and cannot purely rely on digital they they rely on people going in and you know eating drinking and staying yeah there's definitely definitely winners and losers here I think, uh, Henry, you being in New York and uh, I guess uh, Stephanie in San Fran, Aaron and myself in Chicago, see so many uh, businesses, small businesses that have closed doors and uh, likely may, may never open those doors. And obviously there's vendors companies like Zoom or Teladoc who um, this is, their model is kind of ripe to be leveraged in a situation like this. I also think the challenge that we'll see a lot of these businesses face is the sudden uh, increase in, in usage. Uh, so, for example, if you're buying online, you're, you might have an increase in calls to your contact centers or your call centers. Um, also, your, ab- your ability to fulfill uh, distribution requirements uh, because you, you may not have those brick and mortar uh, channels, but you still have, you still need to have your distribution networks in place so that you can uh, account for the the uptick in in demand. Yeah, I, I I agree. Yeah, another. I was just gonna say another thing that I I throw in that I find interesting in in the situation we're faced with is uh, for a number of years now we've had the emergence of what's been commonly referred to as financial technologies of, of various forms. And, you know, since the, the last crisis, there's been a, an increased rise in non-banking institutions that, that really are not regulated in the same way that uh, kind of your common banks are or that, that uh, other financial institutions are. And the, the amount of rigor of that regulation that was applied to those financial institutions, I think and hope, is, is serving us quite well right now. Um, but you have the non-banking institutions that have had the ability to originate and take um, on credit risk and, and other types of um, lending that they do as normal course of business that I think has placed some of them at risk. And uh, you know the challenge that there, the benefit and challenge that, that exists there is some of those may not be able to make it out to the other side, um, given the, the fact that they're startups or smaller institutions and, and not as well capitalized. And some of the larger institutions may be able to benefit from that um, to the points of them being not above the curve when it comes to their ability to be agile and to adapt to the environment. Um, so we don't know what will happen, but... Uh, we do see where where those um, kind of impacts are occurring in the, in the non-banking side of financial services. Yeah, and I think the digital banks, to the point you're making, Aaron, I think who kind of get the benefit of both, they get regulatory oversight and were positioned effectively to take advantage of a more uh, remote customer atmosphere, probably the, the biggest winners here. Yeah, and I think I, I, I think that the challenge as well is, you know, the, the digital banks have creamed a segment of the market that are high, tend, tend to be high credit score customers because they don't want the, the lower credit scored, uh, high, higher risk customers. So actually, the potentially the customers that are left behind in, in all of this are the ones that struggle to get banked or, 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 the, the, or the customers that the banks perceive lower risk. So you know, an emerging digital economy where, where stores are moving online, etc. you know, disenfranchises a group of people that at the time they need it the most um, because, you know, they're, they're having to move from a cash is king economy to, a, to an e-commerce economy and they can't get bank accounts or suitable bank accounts that allow them to operate in, in a new world. Yep, and I think that may be a white space that somebody can come in and uh, take over with the right kind of uh, cash and 
and support in this environment. Um, all right, so I think kind of jumping into what comes ahead. So I think we talked a lot about trends and, and how things are changing um, now and, and for the future. And obviously, uh, we started this podcast talking a little bit about the current focus in financial services being on the immediate here and now. How do I get the work done that I need to do right now? But as as we go a, a few weeks further and some the new normal sets in, uh, working remotely and some of these more dramatic digital focus changes, how, what actions should the, the financial services leadership should be thinking about to position themselves for more effectively when they come out the other end from this? So maybe I'll start with you, Aaron. Well, the first thing that I would say that, that is probably not going to be um, maybe the component that, that's front and center for, for everyone when they think about this crisis is, you know, it wasn't too long ago that many CEOs, financial services, and other gathered in Davos and talked about you know their impact and their commitment to long-term value as it's associated with um, you know, protecting society. And then here we're faced with this situation where they get the chance to prove that. So I think that it's going to be um, imperative on each financial services institution that the choices that they make now will define uh, their reputation going forward. And, and although that that's not tied to, to economics or fiscal policy, I think it's something that will have an impact um, you know, as, as their businesses progress. Then in, in addition to that, I think that you know something that this draws um, close to attention that's that is an extension of society is both how they're serving their customers, their ability to serve their customers, and whether or not they can do that effectively right now, and how they can how they're going to need to think about what that means differently, and the ability for their customers to access them. And we talked a little bit about that in terms of digital asset access and so forth. But you know the other element of it is their workforce. Um, you know, as, as Henry noted earlier, many people are struggling with basic things like can their uh, workforce get a laptop? Can they get it onto um, the internet? Can they do what they do daily? And you know those are fundamentals. But beyond that, there's you know, more sophisticated executions that their workforce, in many cases, need to be able to to perform, um, executing trades, as an example. Um, so, you know, as, as uh, they kind of think about and reflect on the actions that will be taken, I think each of those will be critical uh, factors. I, I think also, Aaron, this, this is probably some people would see as sort of a societal, societal moment in terms of the way that companies are responding. So you know, how they take care of their employees, how they take care of their clients, how they approach how they approach this overall in terms of, you know, are they are they raising prices to to customers on key items, you know, and and just in terms of how they come out of this. So, you know, you talked about DevOps and, and you talked about how people think about their the, the way that they impact the, the globe. And there's been a lot of talk about um environment the environment and, and climate change and things like this. And I think you know, this almost brings it down to communities and things like that. And I think this will be about how how every big big industry, every big firm thinks about giving back to communities and helping rebuild communities at the end of this. And I think people will remember, re- just remember that story and remember how how people behaved and how people engaged in in, in the whole process of recovery. Yeah, it's def- defining moments uh, like uh, like both you, Henry, and Aaron mentioned. So I think all that talk about sustainability in the, uh, Davos, um, uh, I think some of that we're seeing in other sectors, like Facebook uh, committing to releasing some of their strategic stockpile of, uh, uh, of uh, masks, I think. Um, and, and I think Tesla jumping into the fray, I think other companies jumping into the fray to kind of leverage their manufacturing muscle um, to overcome some of the disruptions that have faced other supply chains that were more uh, more typical supply chains for hospitals. And um, it'll be interesting to see how financial services firms think about um, adding that value and 
developing that goodwill, uh, intangible kind of connection with the customer to have a long-term proposition here. How do we think it will change, uh, you know, uh, the workforce going forward? Will will certain roles change? Will they move to be more remote? Um, or just even, like, uh, resolving, you know, or revising business continuity plans, identifying those gaps. Yeah, that's a good point. Obviously, we see a lot of reactive changes here in the short term to adjust to the situation where we are required to be uh, in lockdown. That, I think, uh, is driving a set of behaviors, several of which, when we come out the other side, will be persistent. So especially as we think about workforce, uh, for example, um, a lot of us are working remotely. So what, the, what does that mean when we come out the other side? Does it mean that some of these trends that we're seeing now would be actually uh, adapted and become part of the new normal? So do you want to jump in, Stephanie? Yeah, so I mean, I, I do think this has the ability to, to change the workforce going forward. Um, if you think about, uh, you know, workers uh, needing laptops, do more workers, are they just given laptops right up front uh, so that they have the ability to work from home? What does that do uh, for a lot of workers' work-life balance? Does it positively impact uh, how they view the company that they work for? Um, but at the same time, does it also give businesses the flexibility uh for the next uh, crisis, such as COVID, uh, to react more quickly uh, without such disruption to their business. The one thing I, I throw in there is I think that um, you know, the interesting situation is going to be going back to the to the large unemployment that was announced uh, today is whether or not we're able to close that gap back to full employment or close to full employment in a shorter period of time. Because given that this recession is driven by different factors than the past, and the fact that a lot of the drivers here are people's ability to work mobile or to have uh, an effective way of working, there's going to be um, you know, some... some workarounds that, that institutions are going to put in place to try and uh, make their workforce more effective, and that may not be human jobs. And I think that uh, you know, there's a question of how quickly it will return um, back to, to normal in, in that regard, and whether or not there'll be some displacement as a result of this that can't be closed quickly. Um, so I think the how we work is one component, but I think I would also build upon that in terms of if you think about this, this has been a response to a, a particular issue around coronavirus and COVID-19. Um, but, you know, what happens? What happens the next time? What happens the next time there's a virus that nobody has, a, nobody has an antidote for that people feel that you can't, you, you can't cure immediately? So do we close down the countries again? Do we go through this again? And, and, you know, if you do that, what's what's the attraction to people as you come out of this to start up a small business, to start up a restaurant, to start up a bar, knowing that this is going to be the standard response that, that happens every time you get something like this? You know, equally, if, you, if you're running a very large chain of hotels, why, why would you continue to open hotels or, or continue to, to invest in hotel chains when you know every two years, five years, 10 years that the country is going to get shut down. So, you know, it's, this is, this has been a response to, to an issue. What we need to make sure is as we come out of this, we are prepared as a workforce to face it again. But, you know, we, we, as a consulting workforce, as a financial services workforce, we are, a small part of the overall workforce. It's, it's how does the how does the overall economy respond next time? 
you know, without potentially shutting every store store down across the country, without shutting every restaurant down, etc. That will be the challenge. That will be one of the challenges at the end of all of this. Yeah, but I think there's a there's a fine balance there to be had in terms of reacting to take care of um, the country's health, but also build resilience to be able to sustain something like this again. Maybe one thing that uh, uh, kind of tying back to what you mentioned, uh, Henry. I think working from home and the and the trend around that. Obviously, there's a uh, uh, and the point Aaron made that the, what roles would be available. Um, obviously, I think uh, certain jobs are more predisposed to enabling that, and it tends to be that the the you know higher paying jobs tend to be more uh, more kind of have a higher propensity to to allow work from home. So there's a dramatic shift even from a macroeconomic perspective, I think, in terms of uh, what this means, means from uh, uh, the, the broader poverty and rich gap. Yeah, I, you know, for, for, for me, as an, as an observation, you know, the, the people we are relying most upon now are the people that we probably pay the least to in society. Shop, shop workers, um, you know, healthcare professionals, etc. So, you know, out of out of all of this, is is there a you know, a macroeconomic wage readjustment as we look to to equalise some of some of societal issues? You know, and I think one one of the things and one of the things I think that that does need addressing is the fact that. You know, so many children rely on school for, for their food. And, um, you know, we, we, we in New York kept schools open probably much longer than we needed to because there was going to be so many children who would go hungry as, as a result. Um, you know, and, and as one of the, as the richest country in the world, we have to step back and say, is that a society that we want to be? Yep. And I think we had to deal with the same situation here in Chicago. So I know we are we are on time. Uh, so maybe we can do any closing thoughts and wrap up. So Aaron, maybe I'll let you go first if you want to share any closing thoughts. That presumes I have a closing thought. <laughs> uh, I mean, I I guess what I'd say as a closing thought is, you know, as we've discussed throughout this call, this is an interesting inflection point in human history. And I think that for you know, financial services in all industries, it's going to be an interesting uh, new normal and path forward as we see what uh, you know, transpires, not within this crisis, but as we come out of this crisis. And as, a, as an optimist, I'd like to see that uh, you know, it drives us to a place that is, is different and reinvigorated in a new way societally and and uh, amongst the financial services firms that, that we serve. Terrific. Thanks, Aaron. Henry, do you want to share your thought? I think as a, as a society, you know, this has probably caused us more introspection and reflection than we expected. Um, and I think outside of the, the, the economic issues and impacts that this will no doubt have i think you know it has opened up some societal issues about how we address things like this what we expect of our small businesses how we support our small businesses and and how we treat some of the lowest paid members of of society and we need we need to think about how we work that and also how we how we support people with their mental health we have you know, a third of the country under lockdown at the moment, working from home, um, many of whom are single, living living on their own. And the issues around mental health are real. And I think, you know, as, as a developed society and as developed societies across the US and Europe, we need to think about how we support people on their, on their mental health or with their mental health, because that's key to being resilient and managing to get through things like this. Because if you can't, then... You know, next time we get have an issue, or next time we have a have a have a downturn, or or you know a pandemic or an epidemic, then you know we've not learned. So you know, out of this, we have to learn. 
Thanks, Ari. I think that's uh, that's profound words. Stephanie? I, I tend to agree with Henry here. I do think that we're going to come out of this with many lessons learned that we'll be able to reflect upon. But from a, from a more macro perspective, uh, it has exposed gaps within our society. And we will we need to take action to think about how we're going to support our workforce in times of stress when it comes to unemployment. We need to think about if there's another similar situation, how we continue to provide education and essential services to small businesses uh, and large so that we can uh, continue economic activity. Thanks, Stephanie. And I think uh, I, I kind of uh, share the same sentiment. I think one thing that's uh, been interesting to watch is I think there's uh, an, an acceleration of a lot of trends as we kind of touched on throughout this podcast. So a lot of trends that were already taking place in terms of digitization or work from home, for example, which were facing re- reluctance just because people weren't prior- prioritizing adoption of it. Um, I think this uh, situation has left people with no choice but to kind of uh, adapt uh, with those changes. And with those broader changes, I think there's uh, significant societal ramifications too. So I feel like uh, a lot of cracks within, at least in the US uh, infrastructure, the healthcare uh, infrastructure, the supply chain, the capability for us to treat our people patients and the capacity we have built around that, uh, the severity of problems that we were prepared to handle. I think a lot of those have been uh, laid kind of bare. And uh, part of it, I think, is also that we have never faced something like this. So it's about bringing the cohesive and the full full brunt of our capability in a more coordinated fashion and responding to this. And that, I don't think, has happened as effectively. Uh, uh, it's, this was the first time we were dealing with something like this. So I think that's been, uh, I feel like, one of the biggest challenges. Uh, I was, uh, in kind of my research, looking at uh, uh, different opportunities to to enhance the response. And there are a lot of smart people that have actually thought about different ways to may- be more effective here. It's just that I think we didn't have enough time to react. And um, the time that we did have, I think there, were, there was more debate about the seriousness of this. So my big takeaway is I think situations like this hopefully bring uh, bring everybody together uh, across the globe, across different uh, political spectrum, different lines, to help uh, take on a challenge collectively. Um, and uh, hopefully I think we'll learn lessons from this and be more resilient going forward. Thanks for listening. Here's the Deal on M&A is an independent educational podcast series focused on providing listeners with information surrounding the forces that shape the deal-making landscape. It is an unsponsored podcast, and as such, all thoughts and opinions reflected in the podcast are attributed to the individual speaker only. This podcast is made possible by the amazing team that has helped us direct and produce it. Our sincere thanks goes out to our executive director, Muktadar Ahmed, and our creative directors, Anton Rasadkin and George Zhu, all M&A industry professionals. If you enjoyed listening to the podcast, remember to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you for listening.